Thank you, David. Good to see your fuzzy face up here again. <laughs> and Snoopy says us, us uh, fuzzy faces have to stick together. <laughs> I was eating lunch with... Um, group of pastor friends, and one of my colleagues, uh, Greg Reeder, who's the pastor of uh, Eustic Baptist Church, uh, made an interesting comment. We were talking about the state of the nation and uh, just deploring the moral condition of our culture. And Greg said, it's out of the blue, he said, rather than rail against the darkness, let's uh, light a candle in its midst. And I thought, bingo, that's truth. And uh, my mind went spinning off in a lot of different directions and led me into a desire to talk for the next three weeks about the implements that God has given to us by which we can inveigh against the darkness that's encroaching on every side. It was Bob Dylan who told us 30 years ago that the times they are changing. Uh, he was never more right. I came across uh, an interesting uh, set of comments by uh, Professor Jeffrey Hart of uh, the Ivy League's Dartmouth College. I, I, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but he certainly is a very perceptive observer of our uh, society. Uh, this was uh, reported in the Wall Street Journal. A great many things have happened all of a sudden in this country in the very recent past. Without going into the rights and wrongs of every case, I list them objectively. Within living memory, abortion was a felony in virtually every state in the nation. Today, abortion is commonplace in America. Demands that it be federally funded are alleged to be rooted in the Constitution. Within living memory, hardcore pornography was largely kept out of sight, usually by a rough agreement between sellers and authorities. Now the hardcore stuff is available on your newsstand. Within living memory, school children recited the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, and in many schools, simple prayers. At Christmas time, they sang Christmas carols. Suddenly, all of that fell under prescription. Within living memory, homosexuals were for the most part discreet. Suddenly we find that they demand public legitimization of their, of their peculiarity, stage parades, and demand representation in governing bodies as a legitimate minority. Is there any question that a revolution has, in fact, been foisted upon an unsuspecting nation? Evil, morbid influences are uh, creeping into our culture. I, I think we all, uh, we all agree, a clutter of distortions half lies and ball faced lies and an adult notion of tolerance that demands that we accept everyone's version of truth. Years ago, G.K. Chesterton said that morality like art consists of drawing a very fine line. Today, nobody knows where to draw the lines. We still believe in sin, but nobody, nobody knows what qualifies. Is it okay for Heather to have two mommies? Is daddy's new roommate all right, you know, who knows? There are no absolute standards out there, no system of truth by which we can determine what is fine and uplifting and true and 
and beautiful and, and good. Once upon a time, we believed in civility and courtesy and compassion. Now we live in an increasingly cold and, and brutal world. Jesus was right because of the love of many. Uh, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many is, has grown cold. What terrible times we live in. And what shame. As Jeremiah said of his people, Israel, we've forgotten how to blush. We're living in what many people consider to be a post-Christian era. Now, they do not mean by that that there are no Christians around. There are probably probably more Christians in Western civilization than, than ever before. What they mean is that our faith, Christian faith, no longer plays a part in public policy. God is nowhere. Aldous Huxley years ago said that he is receding from our national conscience like the last fading smile of the Cheshire Cat. Nobody takes him seriously uh, anymore. Christians' assumptions and commitments that were once widely held no longer believe. When's the last time you read a book that was informed by biblical convictions? When was the last time you saw a movie that took seriously the fact that we are children of God made in his image and designed to be, to be loved, deeply loved by him? You, you just don't find that sort of thing anymore. Carolyn and I recently have, have started watching some 40s movies, and it's startling to compare the morality of, of those movies with uh, what we're seeing today on stage and, and screen. There were common assumptions back then. There were, there were truths that we all... Uh, at least tacitly agreed agreed to, but uh, no longer. And underneath everything is that quiet despair of which Kierkegaard uh, referred. A lot of emptiness, a lot of hunger, a lot of longing. W.H. Auden has a little poem that, that goes like this. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play, lest we know where we are. Lost in a haunted wood, children are afraid of the dark who have never been happy or good. So why, why do people say we feel so guilty, so sad, so alone? We're left alone in the universe with ourselves. God is nowhere. No one takes him seriously. But I want you to understand that God is never at a loss. When things look most dark and dangerous, when they seem to be most perilous, then God is at work to create his solution. And you and I are the solution that God is preparing to the state of our of our nation. You say, well, I'm just one of teeming millions. I don't count. Uh, well, I want you to know you do. You matter. And you can make a difference. That's what this little short... Uh, series is all about. You can make a difference. You can have a voice in this society. You, you can have a part to play in bringing into sync some part of our crazy world. You, you, can, you can light a candle in your dark part of the universe. You don't need to waste your time. You say, well, I'm nobody. I, I, I've always loved that Emily Dickinson poem, I'm nobody, she says. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Ah, well, there's two of us. There's a whole bunch of us, nobodies out there that feel we have little impact, little influence on our times. But I want you to know that you matter. You can make a difference. 
So you're not a Christian quarterback or a converted rock star or a multimedia personality. You can be a catalyst for change. That's what this series is about. We're all designed to be of inestimable use to God, every one of us. He has a plan and a purpose for us, created before time began. Paul puts it this way, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. While you were still in your mother's womb, God was shaping you and forming you and preparing you for the the task that he has in mind for you. Even your limitations, even your weaknesses are part of the plan. When Moses was unwilling to to lead his people out of Israel, he said, I'm slow of tongue, an idiom that suggests that he stuttered. God said to him, who made your tongue? Who made your tongue? Even your limitations, even your weaknesses, the the hereditary uh, prison that you you find yourself in, that, that was all strained through God's love, all screened for the the purpose of preparing you for life, your strengths and your weaknesses, your assets and your your liabilities, even your environment, place in which you were raised, the childhood that you endured, all of that was God's way of shaping you and making you for the particular task that God has in mind for you. Everybody can make a difference. You have a part to play. It may be some prominent role. More likely it's uh, hidden and, and concealed. It may be that your whole life will find its meaning in one person that you draw to God, or one event in which you'll you'll make uh, the person and the character of our Lord Jesus uh, known. But I can tell you this: when you stand before your Lord, before our Lord, you'll know that your life has not been without meaning. God has a use for every one of us. The Christian world uh, today is fascinated by politics, marketing, management, psychology, and and other uh, earthly endeavors, all of which have their time and place. God is interested in all of those things, and it may be well, and they may well be your your call. But these things are simply earthly endeavors. And as, as Paul puts it, they have no power to demolish the spiritual strongholds that uh, that abound in our in our culture. Uh, Paul says, "For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does." It's a very significant statement. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war the way the world does. Jesus put it another way. He said. He said, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Now, we think of the bad aspects of the flesh, you know, the pursuit of money, sex, and power, and all the, the evil things associated with the flesh. But uh, Paul's also talking about our efforts to do good things in the energy of, of self-effort. As though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
God has provided us with mighty stratagems and ordinances with which we can align himself against the strongholds of evil in our society. These are not the plans and schemes and dreams of of human endeavor, but the infinitely more persuasive mechanisms of the Spirit. And they are these, and these are the weapons that we're going to be talking about in the coming three weeks, the devices that God has given to us with which we can inveigh against the, the, the evil in our culture. They are faith and proclamation and personal righteousness and perhaps most important of all, a, a heart a connection to God. These are the devices that make a difference. Our times, I believe, provide an historic opportunity to put these implements to their intended use. Paul says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Buy up the time because the days are evil. We often read that passage, and I've pointed this out to you before. We read that passage as though Paul is saying, redeem the time because the days are short. That's not what he's saying. He says, redeem the time because the days are evil. The more evil our day becomes, the more opportunities we will have to speak a word in season to those that are, that are weary. Evil days are days of opportunity. Some of you have uh, seen the movie... Uh, Robin Williams, uh, The Dead Poets uh, Society, and uh, out of that movie has come the phrase, seize the day, carpe diem, seize the day. It's gotten to be a kind of a watchword today. You see it on people's T-shirts, carpe diem. People are surprised when they hear the original. That didn't start with Robin Williams. Uh, it's actually a, a, a line from uh, the Latin poet Horace. And it reads like this. Cut back long hopes. Even as we speak, envious time flees. Seize the day. Trust little in tomorrow. Horace was advising his uh, friend not to run out and try to conquer the world, but to do the small but truly significant things every day that need to be done. What he called the duty of the present moment. And that's what God calls us to, and that's what it means to seize the day, to do the sometimes unnoticed, obscure things, but things that really make a difference, difference, the truly significant things in this world. But you ask, uh, how will I know when my moment has come? You know, the world is bleeding from a thousand wounds. How can I keep from being manipulated by every cause and craze? How can my, I focus my life in order to do the right things at, at the right time? How can I get to the right place to talk to the, to the right person to accomplish God's uh, purposes? Well, let, let me comfort you with this. Your, useful, your usefulness is not your business. It's God's business. It's up to him to get us to the right place at the right time. That's not our business. Our business is to follow him. There's there's a wonderful line in uh, C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian when the children are perplexed about what they should do. Aslan said, anyone can find out what will happen. Get up at once and follow me. What will happen? There's only one way of finding out. you, You remember the time when... 
Peter was told by our Lord what, what de- by what death he would glorify God. And Peter pointed to John and he said, what will this man do? You remember Jesus' words? That's none of your business. What I do with him is my business. Your business is to follow me. That's our task, to simply make ourselves available to God. That's where faith comes in. Make ourselves available to God and know that he will get us to the right place at the right time to say the right thing to the right person. He is faithful, Paul says, and he will do it. I have a little prayer book that... uh, uh, Carolyn discovered some years ago, and I read it off and on, and I came across uh, a prayer from uh, a hermit called The Meditations of a Hermit. I, I don't recall his name. This is his prayer. My Father, I commend myself to you. I give myself to you. I leave myself in your hands. My Father, do with me as you wish. Whatever you do with me, I thank you. I accept everything. I'm ready for anything. I thank you for everything. So long as your will is done in me and in all creatures, I have no other wish, my God. I put my soul into your hands, giving it to you, my God, with all my heart's love, which makes me crave to abandon myself to you without reserve and with utter confidence. For are you not my master? He's our master. We're his subjects. Our task is to submit ourselves to him. It's his business. To put us to his intended use, a use that he prepared for us long before we were we were ever born. He knows. He knows. Now, I, I would like to have you read with me this section from Ephesians 6. As I mentioned, the, the weapons that God has given to us are uh, faith and prayer, uh, worship, a heart connection with God, personal righteousness. We're going to talk about all these uh, strategies and ordinances in, in the coming weeks. And, and a heart connection uh, with God. Everything grows out of worship. All service, all ministry, uh, all impact grows out of worship. We're, we're, we're going to talk about those things in in coming weeks. But I, this morning I want to talk about prayer and the part that prayer plays in uh, lighting a candle in a, in a, in a very dark and, and dangerous place. Prayer is something more than, than a thing we do to sanctify meetings. It has another purpose. It's one of the means by which God puts us to his intended purpose. Now let me read uh, this section starting with verse 10 in Ephesians 6. Finally, Paul says, Like all good preachers, he says finally and then goes on for a number of minutes. Actually, it doesn't mean finally in the sense he's wrapping up his argument. Finally in the sense means from now on. This is a a parameter, a fixed reference point. This is something that we can, it's a linchpin, something we can tie ourselves to from now on. Keep being strong in the Lord. It's a present tense verb. Be being strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. What we do is done not as a result of our own strength, but but out of his, his infinite power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand 
against the devil's schemes. Not only the ways, uh, the, the schemes which he employs on us, but the schemes that he uses on our society to delude them. He's a, he's a liar and a murderer. His goal is to destroy. His strategy is to deceive, to lie. Those are his schemes. This is the way we take our stand against them. For our struggle, our fight, as Paul actually put it, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark age, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you understand what he's saying? People are not the problem. It's the principalities and powers that stand behind those people. The people that, you know, the, the, the wicked, awful people in, in, in your place of business or in your school or your shop, wherever you find yourself, are not the enemy. They're the victims of the enemy. They've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. He, he is the problem. And, and that's why it does us no good to take up merely human arms. We have to employ the mighty strategies and ordinances of faith, operate on the basis of the power of the Spirit. Life's like a Punch and Judy show. Out comes the villain. You know, we boo and hiss and we pick up a bat and start to wail on the villain and the puppeteer simply picks up another villain and begins to play the part all over again. The only way to deal with the with what's happening on the surface is to go around behind and take out the puppeteer. Take your bat to him. That's what Paul is saying. The real battle is fought behind the scenes. It's, it's fought in spiritual places. We are not engaged in an earthly struggle. There's no such thing as secular society. Behind every society, there are spiritual forces at work, and we do ourselves great harm. We're more than impotent. We actually harm ourselves when we we reduce ourselves to, to merely human implements, to take up the whole armor of God, all of the, the whole panoply, all of the elements that Paul describes in the verses that follow. And we're not going to talk about, about those verses uh, this, this particular Sunday. We'll take them up later. Verse 13, Paul says, Therefore put on the, whole, the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, that is, when any evil day comes, when you confront evil, Wherever you have to face it, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Now notice verse 18. He lists for us the various uh, articles of uh, armor, both defensive weapons and offensive weapons. And then in verse 18 he says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, that verse is normally not linked to the panoply, to the, uh, the articles of, uh, uh, of, of warfare, but, it, but it's an integral part of it. it. Surrounds them. It's a given. It's prayer that causes us to stand, and prayer in, in the Spirit. Now, pray in, prayer in the Spirit is not prayer in in some unknown tongue. Prayer in the Spirit is praying according to the way the Spirit leads us to pray. Now, prayer is a lot of things. It's intercession, it's worship, it's adoration, it's praise. It's intercession, it's praying for ourselves and for others. But pray, prayer is also the means by which we fit in. Prayer is the means by which God puts us to His intended purpose. 
And when I talk about prayer, I'm not talking about, as I said, the, the, the prayers with which we anoint uh, these uh, the meetings that we sometimes have, meeting which basically is given to human endeavor, but we pray that God will bless this thing that we're going to do. I'm talking about persistent, prevailing prayer. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations from the Old Testament. One from the life of Elijah and one from, from Nehemiah. Both of these uh, stories we have talked about in years past, and I'm sure that, that many of you will remember the story. So I'm not going to go over them in detail. But you remember the story of Elijah? Elijah grew up in a, a, a little hick town over on the east side of the Jordan River. So small, nobody even knows where it is today. A little town like Atlanta you know, at the end of a 70-mile gravel road. People up there live on the edge. That's where Elijah lived. He was from Tishbe. He was a nobody. Far from the centers of power. He had no political clout. He had no political ambitions. He didn't know anybody in government. He didn't know what to do. But his heart was broken when he heard what was happening within his nation. And what was happening was this. Ahab had allied himself with uh, you know, the terrible uh, Queen Jezebel. and She had brought her Baals with her from Phoenicia and infected the whole nation with idol worship. <clears throat> Baalism was the state religion in Israel. She seduced the people away through uh, her lying prophets, and then finally she used more unmistakable, unmistakable means of suppression. She began to kill off all the prophets until there was no there was no truth around. A few thousand, Obadiah the prophet was hiding away, known only to God, no voice for God in, in the nation. Elijah's heart was broken. What could he do? He was nobody, just like you and me. Didn't have any power base. Didn't know anybody important. What could he do? James said he says he did the only thing he knew how to do, and that's to pray. He began to pray. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. James says literally he prayed with prayer, which is an idiom for persistent, prevailing prayer. I have no idea how long he prayed. He may have prayed for months or years. But he prayed and he waited for God to show him what to do. Now, Jesus said that prevailing prayer is like going to a friend's house at midnight and knocking on his door and persisting until he finally gets fed up with you and he, and he comes to the door and he gives you a loaf of bread so you get off his back and he can go back to bed. He also said that it's like a prevailing prayer is like a, a widow that that keeps hassling an unjust judge, asking him to to give her the justice that 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 she's due, it's due her. But he doesn't want to do it because there's nothing in it for him, and so she just she just stands before him and keeps begging him until finally he caves in, just just to get her out of his face. Now God is not saying. Or, Jesus is not saying that God is like that indisposed friend or that reluctant uh, judge. What he, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If even a reluctant judge will finally give in, if even a, 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 
a friend who's unwilling to help you will, will finally will finally give you what you want. How much more will a God who loves you and really cares about you give you what you need? Jesus said, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives. He who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, the door will be opened. You understand what he's saying? The persistent, patient prayer is the way to begin. If you don't know what to do, then give yourself to prayer. Now you know the story. As Elijah prayed, the Lord turned his thoughts toward Moses' dire prediction in the book of Deuteronomy. Beware, Moses said, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. If you do, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. See what happened is Elijah began to pray. The Lord turned his thoughts to the word of God. That's what it means to pray in the spirit. God begins to align us with his word. And then Elijah began to pray along the lines of Moses' terrible threat. What an awful thing to do in an to an agrarian society, to pray that it wouldn't rain. But see, God had promised that if Israel was disobedient, that's precisely what would happen. Far better that they suffer for a time than that they suffer apostasy. So as Elijah prayed, God began to lead him into a proper prayer, a prayer that God intended for him to pray. That's the thing to do. See, if you don't have a prayer, if you don't know what to pray for, if you don't know what to do, then begin to pray. And God will turn your thoughts to his thoughts and you'll begin to pray in line with him. Paul says, we don't know what to pray for. We don't have the foggiest idea. But the Spirit of God prays for us with groanings that are too deep to be uttered. You understand what I'm saying? Prayer is always the first step. Not perfunctory prayer, but prolonged persistent prayer. As Paul put it in another place, men and women ought to pray and not to faint. That is, they ought to pray and not give up. Now, Elijah, as you know, was uh, ultimately led to confront the court in Samaria, made his way down to Samaria and delivered this uh, awful announcement to Ahab and, and Jezebel. And God continued to use him in an incredible way, he was the man that God used to turn that whole nation around single-handedly. He brought that nation back from the brink of disaster. A nobody. A nobody. God got him to the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And it all began with prayer. Patient, persistent, prevailing prayer. Now let me remind you of Nehemiah. Remember... Remember that fellow, just a minor functionary over in, in Persia? Cupbearer to the king. Servant, slave. May have been a eunuch, for all we know. That was the practice in those days. His brother Hananiah comes with a, a message uh, from Jerusalem, telling of the plight of the exiles there and the destruction of the walls, the terrible situation of, of the people of, uh, of Judah, people that were left back in, in Jerusalem. And, 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 and Nehemiah began to weep. He didn't know what to do. 
didn't have any clout. He didn't, he didn't know what he could do. So he began to pray. The whole first chapter of Nehemiah is, is Nehemiah's prayer. It's full of worship, confession, intercession. What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Four months he prayed before he did anything. So you and I would be organizing committees, running about, putting things together. Nehemiah was on his knees. Chuck Swindoll is fond of saying, Nehemiah is the tallest man in the world from his knees up. Spent four months on his knees in prayer. What do you want me to do, Lord? What? And then finally, the nickel dropped. If you read that chapter, it's interesting. You get to the bottom of the prayer. It's kind of a throwaway line at the bottom, but it's the most significant line in the whole chapter. I was the cupbearer to the king. Bingo. That's it. The cupbearer was a nobody, but he was someone who had the confidence of the king. Because in those days, somebody was always trying to slip a mickey into the king's wine. And the cupbearer was the one, you know, he was trusted to bring the wine in. He tasted it first. If he keeled over, the king would know it's it's not good wine. (laughs) Nehemiah brings his wine into the king, and he's standing there with a long face. He was depressed, discouraged. God hadn't told him yet what to do. Except he was the king's cupbearer, that's all. You know, he's trying to think of what, what he should say. And, and the king said to him, what in the world's the matter with you? It's kind of bad taste to bum out the king. You know, you're supposed to be happy. What's the matter with you? You're not sick. Why is your face so long? And Nehemiah in his memoirs, as he, as he later describes that scene, he prayed to the God of heaven, and, you know, sort of these, here goes nothing, Lord, prayers. And he said to the king, and he told him what was happening to his family and his friends over in Jerusalem. And the king said, what do you want me to do? And Nehemiah had his, you know, he probably was scheming and thinking about ways that he could get this, you know, wedge this conversation into some small talk he was having with the king. And the king asked him, what do you want me to do? That was the beginning. For Nehemiah, and as you know, he became the man that God used to mobilize the entire nation of Judah to rebuild the, the walls. It all began with, with prayer. Here's the lesson. If in your perplexity and worry, you don't know what to do, put away your efforts and present yourself before God in silence of heart and asking what you are to do. Keep on beating a path to his door. Keep on knocking on his heart of hearts and keep on listening. That's what prayer is, among other things. It's worship, it's praise, it's intercession, it's confession, but it's also listening. It's the way God aligns us with what he plans to do. And as you pray, God will begin to remind you of truths, and he will let you know what you are to do. Elijah was led to confront Ahab and Jezebel. He was led into the court of Israel. Nehemiah was led out of the court of Israel. It'll be different for you and me. Uh, it was Joaquin Andahar, the uh, St. Louis Cardinal pitcher, who said you could sum up baseball in one word. You never know. Uh, his word count was off. 
But uh, with the strike and all, he was certainly right about baseball. But that's also the essence of God. You never know what God will do next. Surprise and serendipity is always on his mind. He always has something up his sleeve. As I said so many times, the only thing predictable about God is that he is utterly unpredictable. He has a plan for you that, that will exceed your expectations. You have no idea what God will do for you if you make yourself available to him and begin to ask him what he wants you to do. I don't know how you'll find out what God wants you to do. All I know is that when the time comes, you'll know. Our usefulness is God's business, not ours. Ours is to pray and to make ourselves entirely available to him and trust him to put us to his intended use. When the time comes, you'll know. As George MacDonald puts it, God will show you. Do not fear the how. One of our, uh, Carolyn and I, as you know, are spending a day a week uh, with Idaho Mountain Ministries and traveling around the state. And uh, uh, one of the happy uh, byproducts of that ministry is that we just keep meeting new friends all the time. And uh, we were at a conference up in uh, Montana last uh last spring, and we came across a young Aussie by the name of Graham Nicholson, uh, who came over here to the States uh, about seven or eight years ago, and God has used greatly in a ministry uh, in a, a corner of Montana that's uh, very difficult to even find. On the day that he left Australia, his father gave him this poem, and I want to read it if I can see it. Go then, my son, and may God give you to taste deeply of his matchless love and grace. And in that glorious work on Calvary's cross begun, may you for him secure an honored place. It may not always be the garden of the Lord. Not every tree a glorious fruit will bear. But just remember, neath the barren soil, there are the roots which by the power of prayer will spring to life and glorify our God. Let's pray. What a wonderful thought, Lord, that we can be aligned with you in your plan to bring light and truth and justice to our corner of the world. We have no idea what you intend to do with us, but we know that you know. You've known from eternity past. And it's your desire to reveal that task to us. We want to make ourselves available to you for whatever purpose you have in mind, any load, any distance, any time, any place. May we be men and women of prevailing prayer. May we give ourselves to listening to you until we know what we are to do. And then by your grace and by your strength, may we do it. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.